It's Tuesday, July 13th, and you are tuned into Real Talk. We thank you for that. This show is presented each and every morning by our friends at Bitcoin Well with Bitcoin ATMs across the country, proudly headquartered here in Edmonton. I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, uh, so hang on a second. These guys like it was just like buying and selling Bitcoin. And, and I go, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it. And they said, well, why do I need them? There are other ways I can do it. Why do I need Bitcoin? Well, I said, you ever had like questions? You ever wanted to deal with somebody? You ever you ever you ever wanted to kind of sort something out or, or feel like you had a, a few things that needed to be addressed, but you, you wanted to consult with somebody that knows what they're talking about? That's what they bring you. It's the personal touch, first name base. He's a whole team ready to go. You'll find him under the sponsors tab right at the top at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We're excited to have you tuned in today. We, we shared, we right at, at the end of yesterday's show, we, we shared details on a, an amazing contest that we've got going on right now. One real talker is going to go net zero, and you're going to find out two weeks from now. No, that's not true. In two weeks, you're going to find out who our final three is. And then you, our audience, are going to decide this presented by Kubi Energy details coming up in a little bit on that. Uh, You know, you can check out. I mean, like details coming up on that in a little bit. And then I'm like, or I could just tell you about it right now. But we're just really excited about this. Kubi Energy dot CA slash real talk where you find the details. Somebody's going to win. Somebody's house. Somebody's residence is going to go fully solar. Part of the solar story details to come on that in about 10 minutes time. uh, We're going to check in with uh, Jules Smith. From the Council of Canadians with Disabilities, Reverend Jeff Rock. Reverend Rock. Are you kidding me? That's like the name of a movie. That's an incredible name. Uh, Reverend Rock with a, with a great uh, piece, Making People Think. Uh, it, it's, it's, I mean, this op-ed around uh, equality, marriage equality. Do you ever associate that? Do you ever find that to be relevant? Has this been on your radar that that people living with disabilities, people with disabilities in Canada might be experiencing marriage inequality? What? We're going to get into that. It's Disability Pride Month. It's not Disability Awareness Month. It's Disability Pride Month. I love it. That's coming up in just a few minutes. And then we're going to talk to fashion psychologist and author Don Karen a little bit later on in the show, maybe 45 minutes or so from now. A new book uh, published in 2020, as a matter of fact, Dress Your Best Life. I mean, I want to start question number one on this one is what is a fashion psychologist? How cool is that? I'm a little nervous because I didn't actually put too much thought. Believe it or not, uh, I didn't put a ton of thought into what I wore today. Uh-oh. And, I, and I'm wondering if a fashion psychologist, if Dr. Don Karen is going to be just, just sort of almost like psychoanalyzing me based on my choice of shirt Based on the, she'll be like, why aren't you wearing a sport coat? Do you not take your job seriously? Well, she's like, I see, you know, vertical stripes. I'm yes. thinking, do you feel like you're in a, a cage, yes. Ryan? Do you per, feel? Do that- I feel caged, or do I, or I'm, or am I trying to make myself appear to be taller or more slim? I don't oh. know. Right? Maybe she'll be reading it from that angle. Sam may remember this was uh, this was uh, several months ago. Was before you joined us, I wore a, a shirt, one of my favorite shirts. I wore it on the show. It happened to be purple. And somebody wrote in and said, um, what's with the purple shirt? What message are you trying to send? And I was kind of like, huh? You know, some people say that, you know, people that wear purple, it's it, there's all kinds of things you can read into it, inclu- including 
those I love are purple shirts. sexually repressed, they say. If really? You're purple, you could be sexually repressed. That's what they say. Huh. Yeah. I didn't Pretty know interesting that. one. It's a bit of an awkward one for you to comment on. I don't on have any purple in up, my but... wardrobe. Hoyles! <laughs> hey <laughs> Did the two of you put thought in? I mean, Sam, you're I'm gonna like no offense to you, Sarah. Uh, and, no, but... and, and no offense to me. But I'm gonna award today I'm gonna award best dressed in studio to Samuel Brooks. Um, is this because I mean you always show up as a pro Sam, but is this due in part to the fact that we had a renowned fashion psychologist coming on the show today? I I, I, I gotta be honest, I didn't connect those dots when I was getting some dressed so, this morning. It was just like I, I started with the blue sport coat and kind of worked my way down from so there. So it's, it's just like, an, I wanna wear this jacket, let's figure out what goes. It's a happy accident that you appear to be ready for the cover of Esquire. <laughs> Or GQ. I, I need like some deck shoes on underneath or something okay. like that. Okay, Hoyles, yeah. Hoyles has gone with the classic black, but like the, the nice thin gold chain. I like that. That's very nicely done. Keeping it classy and under... Look, that's beautiful. Bling, bling. Is there, a, is there a, a jewelry maker you'd like to shout out there that you're representing here today? Or <laughs> No? They're not on our sponsor list, so mm. I don't... I don't well played veteran move Hoyles I love it so Dr. Don Karen's coming up um, in about in about 40 minutes from now we're also going to be getting into our mailbag today we, we've uh, I know that there, there's been a lot going on and the shows have been kind of jam-packed and so we, we had uh, our question of the week we're going to get into the results from from uh, our research and strategy partners at Y station we asked you how are you beating the heat how are you approaching the heat wave how are you managing some pretty interesting consumer trends on that and some interesting perspective and then we'll launch we'll officially kick off our question of the week now which is talking about reopenings can i call them that in different provinces jurisdictions across canada and of course around the world you know different scenarios uh of course i'm always going to bring it back to hockey you know look no further than stanley cup final games in montreal versus tampa florida right you know in tampa florida it's like there's no COVID in florida um but also we're at a point where a lot of people are really excited i mean look at the calgary stampede right ton of people down at the calgary stampede pretty interesting numbers uh released by the calgary stampede just yesterday talking about about twenty thousand people had rapid testing done uh you know to, to gain access to nashville north in the absence of, of proof of vaccination mm. and they had like alberta health services staffers and there it was legit they had all the laptops and these health professionals there running people's driver's licenses it wasn't sort of a i mean there's been a lot of rumors that people were you know paying 100 bucks to get past the vaccine station and all that the, sta- the stampede commented on that yesterday said that's horseshit quite frankly that's not happening five cases of COVID 19 out of the more than twenty thousand that were rapid tested which is pretty interesting for a point was it 0.05 or 0.005? Jason Markusoff tweeted about it yesterday, but a negligible number. So it's interesting. Anyway, the point is, it's interesting. A lot of people. It is interesting. Yes. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are a lot of people are ready to get back out there. A lot of people are eager to see, you know, businesses able to start hammering away again to not lose another summer season. And, and, and other folks, uh, which is absolutely, totally, 100 percent fine are feeling varying levels of hesitation. Some people are, are watching, you know, keeping an eye on these stories around these variants and saying, what the hell is everybody doing? Totally fine. Our question of the week this week, ryanjesperson.com, right at the top of the page. Uh, you can get into it. it. It taps into how you're... That's not it, Sammy. I, I was... Yeah, sorry. I, but, uh, you know, that it taps into how you're feeling about reopening. And, uh, and we're curious to know. So we'll, of course, have those results for you early next week. I'm also following a story. I can't. Uh, this is one that this is wild. Uh, it is. It's flying under the radar, I think, because many of you probably have 
I don't know, certain words muted on your social media and your something like that. I don't know. But uh, the, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom is probably aware of him. Um, uh, headed by John Carpe, a uh, pretty prominent lawyer, a uh, good friend of Jason Kenney's. This is the guy that remember compared the pride flag to the swastika and then everybody wanted Jason Kenney to kick him out of the party. And Kenney said he's not going anywhere. That guy. So uh, Carpe and the JCCF are representing a group of seven churches. There's a legal challenge in Manitoba around things like mask bylaws. I mean, that's the general gist of it. And you can check there's some great reporting online, in particular, the CBC out of Manitoba has been doing really great work on this. So it turns out uh, John Carpe admitting yesterday, acknowledging that he hired a private investigator to follow the judge presiding over the case. John Carpe acknowledged on the record yesterday and has ultimately apologized, calling it poor judgment (laughs) to hire a private investigator to follow the judge presiding over his case, followed him home, had a child ring the doorbell to try to verify that the residence was, in fact, that of the judge had the private investigator tail the judge to, to a summer cottage. This is wild jccf.ca says as has been communicated in the media yeah no shit says i apologize this morning to chief justice joyal in the manitoba court of queen's bench chief justice for my decision to include him in passive observation Uh uh-huh you had a judge tailed buddy conducted by a private investigator at my request to hold government officials accountable it's john carpe's job to hire pis to follow judges home to hold them accountable you understand how bananas this sounds how would you feel if it was black lives matter hiring pis to tail judges or police officers how would you feel if it was the hell's angels hiring somebody to follow judges would your feelings on it change because you know some people are going to defend carpe here He says, in an error of judgment, Chief Justice Joyle was included with the observation of government officials. In other words, there were others. Manitoba's chief medical officer of health went on the record yesterday to talk about threats that he and his family have faced. Says over the past 16 months, Canadians have faced unprecedented restrictions on their charter guaranteed freedoms to travel. He's he's trying to justify. This is what you call a non-apology. The Justice Center's mandate is to defend Canadians' constitutional freedoms through litigation and education. He's trying to turn this into a press release. This guy had a fucking judge followed home. You understand what it's like to be in in public service? I mean, we don't. Most of us don't. But can you under can you imagine if it became acceptable or if it was in any way even remotely acceptable? For private citizens, or in this case, activists like John Carpe to start intimidating. I don't care what you call it. The word is intimidating. And if he wants to use or if he insists on using the word passive, like passive observation, this is a passive threat. Can you imagine if it was acceptable to have school principals or chief medical officers of health or CEOs of oil companies? Or judges? Can you imagine if it was okay to have pastors followed home? Can you imagine? Whatever matters to you most in your world or whatever job you do that you feel is thankless, can you imagine if you all of a sudden started noticing that car, that same car that you'd seen parked on your street? We've all watched the movies, right? 
Can you imagine? And what would that do to you? Would that maybe intimidate you? Would that maybe cause you to ease up on the gas? Would that maybe, if you were a judge, potentially influence your ruling? Absolutely and completely unacceptable. And there's been outcry across the country. Uh, as a matter of fact, one lawyer is 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 launching. I mean, this is the thing: is they want they want Carpe. Uh, first of all, you know they're filing misconduct complaints. This is this if this is not illegal, and there is an argument. Um, saw an interview last night on the National with Eric Adams, who's a law professor uh, out of the University of Alberta and, and has done a ton of work in commentary on constitutional law. They're saying that there is an argument here that this could be this could be uh, this could result in, in charges of violation of the criminal code. But if nothing else, uh, Richard Warman, who's a human rights lawyer out of Ottawa, uh, has filed a complaint with the law societies of Manitoba and Alberta, calling this the most egregious case of professional misconduct that he's heard in quite some time. Said uh, Carpe needs to be sanctioned in the strongest possible terms to make it clear that it's completely and utterly unacceptable for a member of the bar to engage in this kind of conduct. So that's a story that we're going to keep an eye on. John Carpe doesn't like me very much. I went on the record. You may have heard I used to host a radio show. It was a pretty prominent one. And after Carpe compared the pride flag to a swastika, I said that he's not welcome on my show anymore. I said that's totally and completely unacceptable. It didn't fly very well at the radio station. I can tell you that behind the scenes. They didn't like that one bit. As a matter of fact, I had a colleague down in Calgary. You may know that as well. And uh, Daniel Smith had a, a really popular show down in Calgary on the uh, another radio station that was owned by the same company. And <laughs> she had Carpe on just a short time after I announced my ban and uh, the, the ripples. If I could pull back the curtain right now and tell you everything, I might. But I will tell you the ripples resonated. And it became this thing. Because John Carpe is actually pretty popular in the right wing ultra conservative circles they see him as a real hero as a real freedom fighter right again just for perspective john carpe hired a private investigator to follow a judge home and to his cottage talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send us your thoughts on this of course sarah hoyles the editorial producer of the show is keeping an eye on our hashtag real talk rj and of course, as well, our live chat right there on the uh, YouTube broadcast. So I mentioned Kubi Energy, our friends at Kubi, you know, they present positive reflections each and every week, the, f- the first show of every week. Well, they're doing something. I mean, this is remarkable. It's their net zero solar contest presented in partnership with Kubi Energy and Real Talk. We want to hear your solar story. Why do you or somebody you know? And we're keeping it open here. You're going, well, what do you mean, Ryan? Do you mean like an organization? Do you mean a nonprofit? Do you mean a startup business? Do you mean an individual? Yeah. The answer is yeah. That's what we mean. What's your solar story? Who could benefit most by going net zero? Who could use free, clean energy for a 30-year block? That's the estimated lifespan of these solar panels. This, Depending on the house, is going to have a different value. Right? They're going to do what it takes to get your house as close to net zero as possible. We're pegging the approximate value at $15,000. So how do you qualify? We want you to tell us your solar story. 
We want you to send us an email. You can attach photos if you like. If you want to put a video together and get super creative, sky's the limit. You know how to find us. Go to ryanjesperson.com. Talk to us is the link right across the top of the page. And of course, if you're looking for details, you see the website there, kubienergy.ca slash realtalk. All the details on this contest. You've got just under two weeks now to submit your solar story to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We're going to narrow it down to our top three. And then real talkers, you are going to vote on who is going to go net zero. That's thanks to Kubi Energy. We're proud to partner with them right here at Real Talk. Well, did you know it's Disability Pride Month? Did you know that Canadians, many of them with disabilities, are being denied equality? There's inequity when it comes to some of the laws around marriage and cohabitations in Canada. It's uh, caught the attention of Reverend Jeff Rock, uh, who's an ordained United Church minister. He's out of the Metropolitan Community Church of Toronto. And Jewel Smith, the Council of Canadians, with disabilities. I'm grateful that both of you have made time for us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk. Jules, can I just say, I've, I, it, it, it's, it's, it's relatively rare that I feel like I have direct competition for, for most spectacular piece of art behind me. But oh, my, my, oh my, before we go any further, tell us about the paint. Is that an orca? Yeah, it's a, it's a mama and baby. Let me see if you can oh, see Oh, I yeah. can see it all right. Did, did you paint that or who's the artist? Yeah, it's me. It's oh, me. my, oh, my. Well, that's absolutely beautiful. Uh, Reverend Rock, welcome to the program as well. Grateful to have you here. Uh, Jeff, why don't we start with you? It's your piece that caught our attention. You wrote about this. Uh, 20 years of marriage equality. No, not for disabled Ontarians. Take us into how this got on your radar. Uh, So I'm the senior pastor at the Metropolitan Community Church of Toronto, which is a largely LGBTQ-centered church. We're in our 48th year. Um, uh, This actually coming Sunday will mark our 40th anniversary. It was founded as a gay and lesbian church. Uh, When you can be a a gay or lesbian person of faith um, anywhere in any community. And so um, in the year 2001, uh, MCC Toronto uh, had this idea to perform the world's first same gender marriage before it was legal in Canada, before it was legal in the Netherlands or Portugal, they performed a marriage using a process called the reading of the bans, which allowed them to perform a marriage and file the paperwork after, which of course was denied by the Ontario provincial government. And they took them to the Superior Court of Ontario and started the marriage equality movement here in Canada and and indeed around the world. So, you know, at the time I was 16 years old, but uh, those marriages were in the news, they were in the media, uh, and they helped shape part of my life as a young gay man. And uh, this year we were celebrating the 20th anniversary of that great occasion. And, um, you know, one day just online came across a a news story from TV Ontario, uh, tvo.org, talking about this couple uh, where one of them had a disability and one didn't. uh, And, you know, they did everything right. Uh, They moved in together to to save money. Um, You know, often for people with living disabilities, the costs of an apartment that's accessible are much, much higher. Um, You know, there's lots of barriers to employment and health care. And that's why we have programs in Ontario, like ODSP, the Ontario Disability Support Program. In Alberta, it's AISH. Um, um, uh, And, you know, many of your viewers will know AISH. In each province, it's a slightly different program. Um, And I found out that if you get married you risk losing your benefits. Um, your, your income is now calculated with your, your, your partner. And if both of you uh, live with a disability, uh, it can be even, you know, deeper clawbacks. So, you know, I ended up on this research rabbit hole looking at the AISH website and the ODSP website. This was in about December of 
um, uh, 2019, I guess, and recognizing that the anniversary of, of uh, those 2020, rather, those um, marriages was coming up, I thought, you know, somebody needs to speak up about this. You know, here we are celebrating LGBTQ marriage equality in, in its 20th year, and we still, here in the province of Ontario, where I reside, don't have full marriage equality. Um, and what's really messed up is that uh, ODSB, the Ontario Disability Support Program, is actually allowed deciding if you're in a common law relationship or not. In the province of Ontario, you are not considered common law until you've lived together for three years. But if you're living with a disability and you live with somebody for three months, they can start to declare you're in a couple. Even if it's non-sexual relationship, it's called an interdependent relationship. And they declare that to be uh, the equality of a, a marriage uh, or a common law partnership. So um, there's some obvious discrimination that happens within the system. Does this uh, uh, you know, affect tens of thousands of people? No. But, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a human rights violation that has been taken to the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal. And unfortunately, the couple that brought their case lost. And I think it, it needs to be readdressed. And, mm. and um, I know the Kathleen Wynne provincial government had put it in the 2018 budget. But of course, there was an election here in Ontario and uh, uh, that inequality hasn't been addressed. So, you know, me as a, a, a gay man feel it's my responsibility to advocate on, on behalf of other communities that have experienced similar types of, of discrimination. Um, and so I, I am by no means an expert on the subject, uh, which is why I'm really um, delighted that Jules is here because she is an expert on the subject, but I think it's important for, for me uh, to use my platform to, to create that kind of solidarity uh, between movements. Solidarity. I love and, and I'm great. Jeff, I just want to be candid for a second. I heard about the premise of your piece before I read it and before I knew anything about you. And my initial reaction was, hey, it's a piece on marriage inequality uh, within the LGBTQ2S plus community and, and Canadians living with disabilities. And I thought, I'm not I, before reading it, I thought, I'm not sure the LGBTQ community wants to be dragged into this debate. Like, what did they do to be dragged into this debate? I'm glad you've clarified. Well, like literally the thing that gets me most excited in life is when I witness that kind of inter movement solidarity, like the, the congregation I'm part of. Obviously, we're a Christian church. But um, we have congregants who identify as Jewish. They come to a Christian church every week because they believe in uh, the message. We call ourselves a, a, a vibrant, inclusive, and progressive faith community and human rights church. So, you know, when there's an anti-Semitic uh, incident, I think it's incumbent on us as the LGBTQ community to speak out against that, right? Yeah. I think when, when things like Black Lives Matter happen... Um, it's incumbent on the LGBTQ2 plus community to address it, you know, uh, talking about what's happening um, with residential school legacies. I think it's so important. You know, we're a church that's only 48 years old, but um, it's so important for us to talk about Christian hegemony and, and um, some, sometimes the aggressive uh, conversion uh, nature that some churches try to get and, and um, uh, to really bring people together. Like that's always that should be the goal of a faith community, right? To bring people together, to address social inequality. Um, and, and so we try to do that in spades here at MCC Toronto. So, Jules, as the Reverend says, yeah, this may not be affecting tens of thousands of Canadians, but it's affecting Canadians. I mean, how much has this been on the radar? How, how much of, you know, what, what share of the work, you know, of the Council of Canadians with Disabilities has gone toward addressing this, whether it's lobbying provincial or federal governments or, or even just informing and educating the public? So, I mean, we've done an, you know, an extensive amount of um, educating and reaching out and questioning what's happening for people with disabilities. Um, it's generally policies that implicate, not laws. In fact, 
Canada has ratified the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Article 23 guarantees the right of people with disabilities to um, have the family of their choice, how it would look. But the Reverend is correct that, um, you know, for example, in British Columbia, if you are um, if you move in together, you can lose your benefits. If you move in with an able-bodied partner, they suddenly become responsible for all of your costs, um, which is alarming when you think the disability costs are more than the average Canadian. So you might have wheelchair, accessible transportation, braces, medication. Um, these things can all be lost if your partner makes, you know, too much money, as it were, but not really enough to survive on. Um, and as well in British Columbia, uh, we hear stories that people who just move in as roommates are told, um, oh, you're a couple. We assume you're a couple and therefore you have to pool your resources. Yeah. Jeff so, talked about that. Can, can we dig into that? Because my understanding is like, you know, when, when, when we take a look at sort of how it works federally speaking, and, I, and I'll just keep it like high level and then the two of you can chime in on this. But 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 if the if 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 a person um, with disabilities uh, cohabits with someone else, my understanding is that that after just three months, uh, they can be categorized outside of the, they don't. This is not a self categorization, correct? They can be categorized as as living common law, whereas a person without a disability, it's it's literally three years, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And like, that's that's specifically in the province of Ontario, and and the, <laughs> the, one of the challenges with this conversation is every province has a, a different support program for people with living with disabilities, um, and the rules are all slightly different. Um, but I know for here in Ontario, when that Ontario Human Rights Tribunal case was taken forward in 2017, it was to address the fact that, yeah, a, a caseworker gets to decide if you're in a relationship or not uh, and not yourself. I'm uh, uh, we, uh, one of our audience members, Les, uh, out of southern Alberta, just does a ton of advocacy for, for people with disabilities. And he's kind of this real grassroots guy. Uh, he says this is why people on on age uh, assured income for severely handicapped do not get married. He says they'll even maintain separate addresses. Now, if both clients are on age and both are getting a rent subsidy, where are the savings in this outdated policy? Yeah. And I mean, I just want to mention, so my, I'm just wrapping up my dissertation right now and I interviewed disabled mothers in Ontario and BC. And I heard in both provinces of um, disabled mothers who made the decision to live independently of the parent, like the father or other parent of their child, um, strictly because they didn't want to lose their benefits. They felt it, you know, it would put them in a precarious situation if they were reliant upon another person. Um, so this has led to, you know, maintaining those two, two separate households, paying all the costs for two separate houses, shuttling children back and forth, making sure you don't spend enough, you know, too many nights at the other person's house because then there's going to be assumption you're in a relationship. And this is a real strain on families. We know in British Columbia, for sure, uh, most households rely on two incomes just to make the bills. Sure. Um, and then if you look at, you know, living on a disability benefit, it's um, distressing. Reverend, this is, uh, I mean, I, I guess like Jules is here doing a, an amazing job, obviously, from an advocacy standpoint, being very diplomatic. 
Um, you yourself as, as one that presides over unions, right? I mean, you, you write in the star about how, how significant it's been to you to, to marry same-sex same couples on the same ground, literally, uh, where some of the first unions in Canada occurred. I mean, that's a big deal. If we take a look at this more from the esoteric, uh, you know, love is love standpoint and, and, and take away all like the policies and, and, and the paperwork and the stipulations and the rules, I mean, these are people that are being denied the, the, the beautiful experience of sharing a life with somebody. I mean, the, the emotional angle on this story is very compelling. Well, as a single person, uh, you know, it's always my <laughs> hope that one day I'll find love and get married. Um, uh, but sometimes there's barriers to that. Right. And I think I think it's our job as a society to remove the barriers to inequality. And, and that's not a project that's going to be done one day. Right. There will always be inequalities in our world. But I think it's our responsibility to slowly but surely keep that arc of the moral universe uh, bending towards justice. Um, um, and, 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 you know, we, this is a problem that's been identified. It needs to be addressed. The, there was talk here in Ontario of addressing it as far back as 2018. It hasn't happened. Um, and, and, you know, uh, performing marriages is one of my favorite parts of my job. It's, it's you get to be with people, you know, at the best and the worst times in their lives as a pastor. Uh, and weddings happen to be one of those best times. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's such an honor and a privilege to, as a faith leader, act as a government agent in a way and perform that marriage and, and perform a legal function to bring people together. Um, it's also a really interesting thing when you're a, an MP, a, a member of parliament, you have the right to perform marriages as well. Hmm. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, so politicians know how, how beautiful and, and sacred of a task this is. You know, even, even Rachel Notley, I've seen uh, posting pictures on Facebook uh, performing marriages and how, how much of a privilege she finds that as a, as a politician, because it's truly, you know, uh, one of the most beautiful experiences in life to, to, to legally and spiritually and emotionally join your life with somebody. And when you say, um, you know, you, your, your right to a, a guaranteed income, your, your right to, to, to be able to survive is at risk. Um, if you want to make that commitment to a person, uh, you know, it's, it's just a complete, complete net or injustice that I think it's our, our incumbent on us as a society, um, uh, you know, to, to address. And, and, you know, Ryan, I, I would be doing myself a disservice uh, on your program as a, you know, a former Alberta politician myself, not to be pushing a, a, a basic guaranteed income and how things like ODSP in Ontario and H in Alberta are, are a form of, um, you know, a, a basic guaranteed income. And we, we give people living with a disability things like H and ODSB, recognizing that life costs more and we want to give you the equal opportunities as somebody living without a disability. It's not a pity, here's some money, um, because we pity you, it's to give you the same opportunities as someone else. So I don't care if you're if you're a multimillionaire and you live with a disability. I think you should be able to qualify for A or ODSP. Um, and I know that's a controversial thing to say because it's literally just to help address the cost of living with a disability, right? Um, and so to me, it shouldn't matter if you're married or not married. It shouldn't matter if you have a great job or not a great job. It's to give everybody the same opportunity and the same chance. Yeah, and I know um, that the numbers, the, the the income, the assured income or whatever it's it's called in the different provinces obviously will differ. But it, to be clear, uh, we're not talking about like $44,000 a month here, right? I mean, for, for, for a lot of people, you know, H, in Alberta, I can, I can talk 
with 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 some knowledge about the the landscape in my home province of Alberta. I mean, I can tell you that even the current government has de-indexed age, so it's not even keeping up with inflation right now, which a lot of people have described as one of the more cruel moves that they've seen in governance in a long time. Let me also acknowledge that the government prior to this one, uh, Rachel Notley's NDP, I know left a lot of people wanting as well. Ace really has not been treated seriously by any government. If you talk to advocates for people with disabilities, they'll tell you that this is not a this is not a partisan issue, or at least not at at, at a grand scale. Uh, let me let me clarify something. You said as, as a former Alberta politician, did you mean a, a, a clergy or am I missing? Were you an elected official in Alberta at some point? Uh, no, no, Ryan. I okay, lost. no, slip. Right. But you were you were at Gates Memorial United Church in Red Deer. People, that's why a lot of people are going to be recognizing you, right? Yeah, and well, I ran as the federal liberal candidate in Red Deer Lacombe in 2015. I see. Um, it, it is not surprising that a liberal in central Alberta did not win the election. That's weird. But, uh, that's um, weird that that's that's <laughs> weird that that a gay minister running for the liberals in central Alberta didn't sweep to victory, Reverend. I'm I'm to- I can't. I'm going to spend the rest of my day trying to figure that one out. Um, Jules, let me <laughs> let me ask you. Uh, you know, people are going to say so. This this is me as devil's advocate. People are going to say, hey, listen, you know, these are tough times, and we're running deficits, and the economy's languishing, and we need to tighten the purse strings, and we need to tighten our belts, and and to me. You know, and then and then they're going to ask the question: Why, if a person with disability is living with another person with a disability or an able-bodied person, or however you want to phrase it, whatever the situation is, I mean, they are getting support from their spouse or from their partners. So, you know, the loss of benefits really shouldn't be an issue. I mean, why would you argue that maintaining this support is so important? First of all, I mean, I think I just want to build on something that the Reverend was saying that. Um, we have an assumption that people with disabilities are receiving charity from from Canadian taxpayers, um, and not um, having equal human rights. And I and when you flip the switch from a charity understanding of disability and equal rights to human rights understanding, then you start to under you know recognize this is about full citizenship. This is about people with disabilities having the right to um, have the full range of life that all Canadians enjoy, including the right to be married or live common law and to have a family. So I just want to start with with that as a basis. A thousand dollars a month that most people in our country get if they're disabled and and unemployed um, is not a great amount of money. Um, And most people with disabilities try to work whenever possible. And many provinces allow a certain amount of of money to work. Uh, I don't think that, and and I certainly as a working Canadian with a disability, I pay my taxes and I hope that it's benefiting anybody who's struggling. Um, and I have extra costs as a person with a disability and I, you know, and I struggle to maintain those because I'm not on any benefits of any kind. So, you know, I don't, I don't even think it's an argument. I don't think that we should go, oh, that group and that population of Canadians deserve less. They deserve less of a life that's, you know, we know it's, it's already difficult enough to live with a disability and the opportunity to have love and a relationship and a family, I think is just part of what we expect for all Canadians. So, Reverend, what do you I mean, what if you were if you if you're talking about this or if you have already, perhaps in front of your congregation or if somebody says to you, you know, you guys are out for coffee and you're having this conversation, they say, OK, but so what, what can we do about it or what should we do about it? What would be your call to action? Well, you know, yeah, I'm the first person. I live in Alberta in the, the boom times and in the beginning of the bus times. Uh, and I know that purse strings need to be tightened in Alberta. And, and, and there's a lot of talk about the economy. Um, but you don't balance budgets on the backs of the most vulnerable people in society, right? Uh, and, and you know, Jules, I could not agree with you more about switching that, that, that lens from seeing it as charity to human rights. 
Um, and, and to me, really, this is like at the, at the basic fundamentals, this is a human rights issue. And you know what? I, th- I think it would be great if governments got rid of Asian ODSB and provided housing, you know, um, uh, affordable housing, like $1,000 a month in, in Edmonton, when I lived there 10 years ago, would get you a closet. Yeah. Right. In downtown Toronto, $1,000 a month, I don't even think would get you a closet. Um, uh, you know, the average rental price in Toronto for a one for a studio apartment is like 2000 bucks uh, a, a month. So, um, well, and I think this is this about- is a big part of the conversation that needs to happen in in uh, I mean, whether it's like this, the three of us uh, or whether it's the subsequent conversations that are going to happen after people download this podcast and start talking to their own networks and their own circles um, around uh, some form of guaranteed income or a universal basic income, as you may call it, is that it comes with the trade off, uh, at least under certain models and the models to me that make the most sense and, and that will sell best to the public. Uh, they come with essentially the folding up or the cancellation of other social programs so you're saying we're not going to be spending on age we're not going to be spending on things like certain rental subsidies or whatever the case may be but here's where we're establishing our universal basic income and then you go from there um jules is that something that the, the council of canadians with disabilities advocates for is this something that's been you have an official position on Sure. So, um, as you may know, on the 23rd of June, um, just before the House wrapped up, they post they um, tabled a disability benefit um, piece of legislation, Bill C-35. Um, and so the council believes that disability income is, or, or sorry, disability benefit is separate and different than from a guaranteed income because we know it costs more to live with a disability. So I just want to make sure that we don't entangle those two conversations, because even if every single Canadian was guaranteed a certain amount of money, when we look at those extra costs of, you know, accessible vehicles, service animals, accessible housing being more expensive, cost of medications and braces and therapies and, and, and all of those, um, it, and, and personal support workers coming into your home, it's more expensive to be disabled. So I just want to make sure when we do talk about um, a guaranteed income that it's not entangled with the benefit for, for just covering the disability costs. And we do, um, you know, we fully support that um, piece of legislation. It's unfortunate. It was tabled just before the House rose and we have concerns there's going to be an election and who knows what will happen to it. I do have uh, Chelsea's here on our, in our live chat wondering if the disability tax credit addresses the issue of living with a disability or with the issue of, of some of the in- added incurred costs of persons with disabilities. We, what, what would be your comment to Chelsea, generally speaking? So I think it's something like 40 percent of Canadians with disabilities uh, qualify for the disability tax credit. So I don't. And I have pretty complex disabilities that affect me and cost me. Um, so. First of all, we need to look at our definitions of disability and how those restrict access to certain programs and opportunities. Um, So it does benefit certain folks with disabilities and then it doesn't benefit others. Jules, can I get personal for a second? Can you share with us why you don't qualify? Is it is is it an income threshold? No, Um, even when I was living in pretty, pretty severe poverty as a single mom with two boys. Um, I didn't qualify. It's because um, it's really restrictive, the definition. You should go look it up. It's things like you must be blind, have lost a limb, be paralyzed. It's not if you live with um, episodic disabilities or if you can walk more than two blocks on your own. I mean, you just you don't qualify Hmm. people with um, mental health 
uh, conditions don't qualify people who have episodic disabilities that, you know, perhaps they're not well for a year or two and then they go into remission, they don't qualify. Um, so we really, we've been pushing hard for the government to uh, reassess those definitions and really uh, look at um, how we define disability in Canada and align it across all policies and programs and laws. Hmm. Um, I, I, I want to hard swear for a second here, uh, Reverend, because I'm now I'm Googling you and reading all up on you and I'm <laughs> seeing how you did in the 2015 federal election. And, uh, well. <laughs> uh, hey, let me point out, uh, I mean, Blaine Calkins, who's who's the, the member of parliament for that riding for Red Deer Lacombe. I mean, you, you would say he swept to victory uh, with 70 percent of the vote. You took 15 percent of the vote. However, you advance the liberal vote in that conservative riding by 11 percent over the election before and of note i'm sitting here crunching numbers because this is what i geek out on you and blaine calkins actually spent i don't know if you know this about the same amount of money per vote on your campaigns you spent a dollar 79 per vote he spent a dollar 72 not a horrible showing that's a pretty decent showing i want to in seriousness though ask you about some of your involvement in central alberta when you were there um worked with the central alberta aids network uh the red deer interfaith network but you also volunteered with the urban aboriginal voices society and the local truth and reconciliation commission um as a man of faith as a uh, man with a sense of social justice and with some experience uh, how have you been processing or wrapping your mind around the national or international conversation that we've been having uh, in the context of Canada's history with residential schools? Oh, you know, Ryan, it's a really great point because um, I was the minister of, as you mentioned, uh, a United Church in, in Red Deer. Um, and in Canada, most of the residential schools were run by the Catholic Church. Uh, a sliver were run by the uh, Anglican Church and just a few, a handful were run by the Presbyterian and Methodist churches, which merged together to form the United Church. The one in Red Deer in central Alberta happened to be one of those Methodist-run residential schools. So I was the pastor at a church that used to be uh, associated with a residential school a few kilometers away. And in my time there, the old residential school cemetery, uh, a farmer was plowing his field and hit a, a wooden grave marker. And uh, a group of uh, local Indigenous folks and, you know, one elderly gentleman who had worked in a residential school many, many decades prior, uh, and people like myself as a faith leader and in and, and, and the community, we got together and founded a national organization called the Remembering the Children's Society that was dedicated to preserving the cemeteries of residential schools. And this was, you know, um, we founded that organization, I guess, six, seven years ago, and that work had been started just before I arrived in, in, in Red Deer for seven years. Um, and, you know, we did work to with the federal, the, the provincial government to buy that land from the farmer to make sure there was access to put up stone markers. Um, there's the, the photo from the Red Deer um, Cemetery where four children uh, uh, were buried during the uh, Spanish flu epidemic. And unfortunately, the residential school in Red Deer closed because quite literally too many of the children died from the Spanish flu and they didn't have enough children to legitimate keeping themselves open. And, and the Red Deer Residential School had one of the highest mortality rates uh, in the country in its 25 years of operation. So, you know, the conversations about um, residential school cemeteries isn't new to me. Hearing the numbers is not surprising to me. Even uh, last week in, in Cranbrook, BC, at the Katana First Nation St. Eugene's Residential School, they, they um, used radar to... to uh, penetrate the ground and, and determine the number of graves. But that cemetery we've known has been there for, for decades. I went and sat in that cemetery for a moment of reflection at a, a workshop held in the former residential school um, with survivors of that residential school. So, so some of those conversations aren't new, hmm. and, um, um, but they're important. Yeah. And I'm so, so 
moved that those are rising to the 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 human the, the Canadian consciousness um, that our Canada can have those different difficult conversations that you know this year we made a very conscientious decision to pause Canada Day and to, to treat it as a moment of reflection because if we're truly going to be proud of our country it needs to be uh, with the full knowledge um, and, and and the full awareness of the good the bad and the downright ugly so um, um, to me, those that, those are sacred. You know, those are sacred conversations. Those cemeteries are holy ground. Uh, that history is absolutely essential. And you know, as I said earlier, as a person of faith who you know was actually alive when the last of the residential schools were were, were closing, um, you know, as a young person in his thirties, um, I think I think it's incumbent on me to ensure that everybody has this education that that this doesn't just get forgotten and swept under the rug one more time, uh, and that these conversations continue to happen that as a gay man in there, thank you for putting up the crisis line, as, as, as a gay man, the, the struggles of Indigenous Canadians relate, right? It makes me, you know, when I was at that St. Eugene's residential school in Cranbrook, BC at this workshop for a week, you know, I outed myself in a room of Roman Catholic priests as a gay man who had a bit of a chip on his shoulder against the Catholic Church. And I was swarmed after that session by the elders from that community, the residential school survivors themselves, to tell me about, have you heard of two spirit identities? We celebrate uh, sexual diversity. And here these, these elders who are residential school survivors were checking in on me and making sure I was okay. Hmm. Um, uh, which to me was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And I'm even getting chills, just, you know, uh, I'm getting goosebumps remembering that, that moment. That kind of solidarity um, uh, between communities, I think is what makes Canada the beautiful country that it is, right? Um, um, so, yeah, these are these are important things that connect to the disability conversation, right? That connect to conversations about marriage equality. This stuff is all deeply related because we're all human beings. Like human rights are not complicated. You're human, you have rights. Period. It's uh but it, make it so complicated. Yeah. I saw I, I wish I could remember. I wish I could cite the source, uh, but it's just swimming around in my head with everything else. But a comment I heard, it was a, it was it was a historical comment. Um, from from someone who is advocating on behalf of indigenous people who said, why is it so important uh, that we become, I wish I could remember the source, my apologies, but they said, why is it so important that we establish ourselves as human beings? And the answer, of course, was because if we are human beings and understood to be as such, then we are entitled to human rights. And uh, I thought that was really, really I mean, it, it's it's an obvious statement. It's far from profound, yet it is at the same time. I want to I want to mention a couple things. Um, this is uh, the Reverend Jeff Rock joining us, Jewel Smith as well. Um, we talked to Jeffrey Shalafu back on June 25th about the, the resurgence of of the, the, the idea of uh, the two spirit person and that sort of ideology, uh, not the ideology, rather, but the ideology that had stifled or, or that had that had hammered down that element of indigenous culture for quite some time, the understanding of it. It was a f wonderfully enlightening conversation. And for those of you that are listening to this, our friends that subscribe to and download the podcast, the uh, crisis line uh, for the Indian Residential School Survivors Society is one eight six six nine two five forty four nineteen. 
Uh, Jules, I want to give you last word on this. And, and in a sense, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, my friend. Uh, we've been talking about marriage equality. And, and I know that for a lot of people, I mean, we're seeing feedback right now. Audience members are saying, I had no idea that this was going on. I had no idea that this was happening. And so this is how it begins uh, by putting it on people's radar. As mentioned, it is Disability Pride Month. Let's acknowledge that the work of the Council of Canadians with Disabilities goes 12 months a year, 365 days a year. What's one other thing that before we say goodbye, before we thank the two of you for your time, one other thing you want to be all over people's radar right now? I just want people to really acknowledge the systemic ableism that is built in Canadian society. Um, we talk about systemic um, racism. We talk about, you know, colonialism and the impact, but we rarely mention ableism. I want that word to become a household word and an awareness that when you look at your company's policies, your hiring practices, you look at legislation, you look at, you know, new new opportunities that you always consider ableism and how is ableism impacting those particular new policies and the current policies and legislation. Really appreciate that. Um, and uh, I really appreciate both of your time. Uh, I've taken you a bit into overtime. I hope I haven't made you late for your next meeting or your next commitment. It's been such a pleasure uh, to welcome both of you to Real Talk. As Joel Smith with the Council of Canadians with Disabilities and Reverend Jeff Rock out of uh, Metropolitan Community Church in Toronto. You can read Reverend Rock's piece uh, in the Toronto Star. Uh, 20 years of marriage equality. No, not for disabled Ontarians. And we can make that disabled Canadians for the purpose of this conversation. Thanks to both of you. Much love. Thank you. Cheers. Peace. Yeah. Appreciate that advocacy. Uh, I love that. Just like the little side note. Oh, yeah. By the way, I was the federal liberal candidate in Red Deer. That was kind of an interesting story. 10,000 <laughs> votes. Not bad. I mean, for I'm just saying I got a lot of love for Red Deer. I lived in Red Deer for, for two years. I met my wife in Red Deer. My first broadcasting job was in Red Deer. It's a wonderful city. Uh, not exactly the type of city where the the average person w- would, I think, want to run for the federal liberals. Let me just say it takes some courage. Mm. <laughs> it takes some courage. I know there's a lot of people. This is I mean, I'm smiling and smirking and laughing, but it's actually not that funny. But if you think about it, there are people that are like, I, I would vote for like the liberals of the federal NDP in Red Deer. Um, but there's no way in hell I'm putting up a lawn sign. Like, there's just no way. Lawn signs, such a fast. We should do a whole segment on lawn signs. What does it say about you if you have a lawn sign? What does it say about you if you have a lawn sign advertising or endorsing the underdog or the unpopular candidate who's experienced vandalism of their lawn signs? Who's had neighborly relationships end or grow as a result of lawn signs? That could be a fascinating conversation, couldn't it? These conversations are possible because of the support of our builders, our Real Talk sponsors, we have them all featured at ryanjesperson.com under the sponsors page. That's where you can find Friesen Brothers, 16 locations across the province of Alberta, still family owned after more than 65 years, uh, proudly supporting Alberta producers. Whether that's the produce, protein, whether you love those beef short ribs, or maybe the vegan options are more your style, whether it's Alberta honey, whether it's Alberta milled flour, I mean, they're famous sourdough. They've got that tri cheese sourdough featured right now. It's a seasonal feature. Uh, you can find it all at Friesen Brothers and you can check them out online, Friesen.com. 
Uh, they've even got that weekly flyer you can take a look at. We're also so grateful for the support of the team at Local Waste. Every Friday, you know, they love to talk trash. They love it so much, they stamped their name on our segment, Trash Talk. Every Friday, your chance to get something off your chest. we got a ton this week. I'm looking for something a little less political. You want to get something off your chest that has nothing to do with politics? I'd love to hear from you. Label it Trash Talk to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Local Waste works with their customers and their future customers by helping them get out of bad contracts. You know, there have been some deals here signed by businesses and they're realizing early on it doesn't work for them. It's not allowing their business to grow. In fact, it's holding them back. Check out localwaste.ca. You can find their contact information right at the top of the page. You ask for them by first names, Mikkel, Lauren, Chris. They'd love to talk to you about building a business relationship starting right now. Also, a big shout out to the team at Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. You can see the amazing work that they do. If you're thinking of listing your home, I don't have to tell you about the return on investment when it comes to ramping up your curb appeal. It's what they do. They've been solving problems like drainage or not enough sun or whatever the case may be. Whatever your landscape challenge is, Eden Landscaping wants to take it on. You can find them online right now at landscapeedmonton.ca. We've got, uh, I mean, a glut of incredible emails uh, from you, from real talkers who, who take the time to, to process what you're hearing on the show, or in some circumstances, these are some of our favorites, stuff you're not hearing on the show. You want to hold us accountable. You want to hold our feet to the fire, and you're wondering, hey, well, what's going on here? Maybe we want to educate you. Maybe, maybe we, as real talkers, could provide the audience or the host with a perspective from lived experience. That's exactly the case with this email that we received overnight uh, from Marina, not her real name. She says, I listened to your interview with Dr. Bakshi yesterday. She's talking about Monday's interview. It was a remarkable interview. It was, was kind of tough to tough to see Dr. Bakshi so frustrated. You could tell exhausted. She shared with us um, her personal journey. I can't tell you how much I respect the doctor for talking to us yesterday, diagnosed with PTSD. Uh, she's been receiving counseling while continuing to work on the front lines. She's a, a specialist in internal medicine, and you have to check. It was a must-watch interview. If you missed that yesterday, you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, Marina says, uh, your interview with Dr. Bakshi, as I drove into work at the hospital, I've been working as a registered nurse for 10 years, and until the last year, I can say that I truly love my job. COVID, the reality of increased patient acuity, increased staff burnout, and the political posturing from this government has led to an overall feeling of exhaustion and underappreciation. Marina says, I wanted to give you and Real Talkers a glimpse into what it looks like at Edmonton's Stollery Children's Hospital right now. Says, that's right. This isn't just affecting adults. The stress on the system is real, and it's having an impact on our tiniest patients. Since the start of the pandemic, we've been redeploying pediatric nurses with little or no adult training to work on adult wards. We've also seen an increase in stress leave, nurses leaving for positions outside the hospital. This has left us looking to fill holes with casual staff members and, and, and a lot of reliance on overtime. For example, says Marina, my last weekend off, I got 15 messages from our staffing office labeled urgent 15 in an attempt to fill empty shifts. The reality of not being able to get to these shifts or fill them out means that the beds at the Stollery Children's Hospital are closed 
on a daily basis. It means that kids with injuries or those who are requiring surgery sit and wait in the emergency department for a bed on the ward. And we always try to be cognizant of ensuring that we have a safe nurse to patient ratios. But with the staffing crunch we're facing, the push from management has been to take on more patients with fewer nurses in an attempt to keep those beds open. Now, of course, this can only go for so long before bed to patient outcomes or bad patient outcomes, pardon me, start to happen. Personally, says Marina, an RN, I don't want to ever have to tell a parent that something happened to their child that shouldn't have because I had too many patients to see after and too much to do. In other words, I don't want to tell parents I was too busy. The reality is that feeling underappreciated, undervalued or overstressed is a perfect storm. And I believe that this will get worse before it can get better. A year ago, I would have told a young person looking at future careers that nursing was a great option. It's flexible. There's a wide variety of of areas you can work in. And most of the time, the stress of the job is balanced out by enough good moments that it makes it okay. I no longer believe that. And I'm not sure that this career is right for me anymore. That's from Marina, not a real name, but a verified identity, a real talker, an RN for 10 years. Thank you. We appreciate that. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. By the way, it always feels a little strange for me to read something like that and then just blow past it and keep the show going. But we know that with us and we know that with you, these things resonate. We want to continue to provide you perspectives. Yes, sometimes from the executive directors and sometimes from the CEOs and sometimes from the high profile individuals. But to me, it's the boots or or maybe in this circumstance, the Crocs on the ground, the messages that really, really resonate. And we encourage more of you to write into the show. You can always submit your messages in confidence. We do require that you provide some sort of insight into how we know that what you're talking about is legitimate and many of you have taken steps to do exactly that some of you emailing from your corporate accounts so we don't always recommend that we're going to talk about the psychology of fashion in just a second i want to remind you that as we are keeping an eye on our hashtags and our comments and sam's running the show from his producer headquarters over there we're doing it with the assistance and the support of the team at westworld computers for 40 years they've been family owned more than 40 years on the sales and service side one-on-one working with their oftentimes repeat customers to meet you where you're at with regards to horsepower the computing power you need and of course also the support you need on the service side you can book your service appointment today skip the big long lines at the mall that big box store you know the one i'm talking about instead meet your apple needs at Westworld Computers. Find them online, even buy online at westworld.ca. Big shout out to the teams at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. If you're looking for a three-quarter ton, maybe a one-ton heavy hauler, you've got that fifth wheel. Super excited about what the summer holds in store, but God bless her, that tow rig you've had for 25 years, you're not sure if you want to take the family through the Coquihalla one more time. The best selection you'll find in the province of Alberta is at the shared inventories of Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. You can check those out online right now. Just follow the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. I have no doubt that this next conversation is going to be a fascinating one. Our next guest, Dr. Don Karen, is a New York City-based, Columbia-educated fashion psychologist. She studies how color and beauty and style and image and shape affects human behavior while addressing cultural sensitivities 
and cultural norms. The Good Doctor is the author of a book published just last year, Dress Your Best Life, a book about how we dress, why we make the fashion choices we do, and what it says about us. Dr. Karen, welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> what kind? I mean, what a cool job a fashion psychologist. I've, I've, I'll be honest. I'm pretty certain this is the first fashion psychologist I've ever interviewed. How do, how do you get called into a field like this? How did you know that this is what you were meant to do? Well, uh, I would liken myself to be a futurist. Um, so upon, you know, studying, I noticed, uh, you know, I mean, you, you're go- I'm, if I'm going to an Ivy League, I have to do something extraordinary, right? So I noticed at the time that there was um, a gap, if you will, and no one was talking about the psychology behind why we wear what we wear. We have spiritual psychology, we have child psychology, we have black psychology, we have indigenous psychology. So why not fashion psychology? And so I noticed that there was something missing and voila, 11 years later, now we're here. Amazing. So do you, I was joking about this earlier. I, I, I said, oh my gosh, I mean, interviewing a fashion psychologist, I, I probably should have more th- put a, more thought into what I wore today. Do you, do you find yourself, I mean, back when things are, you know, get back to what they once were and you yourself walk into a reception or a cocktail party or you walk into a boardroom, do you find yourself almost psychoanalyzing people based on what they're wearing? Everyone thinks I do this. I mean, I have to turn my brain off. I have to turn my brain off at some point. So, no, I don't go around and analyze everyone. But everyone that comes across me, they're always intentional and nervous about what they're going to wear. So you're not the first and you're not going to be the last. Okay. well, yeah, that's good. Well, you've you've allowed me to feel like I can that I can ease up a little, be put at ease here. And and we want to tap into your expertise. And in in, in a moment, I want to talk to you about cultural appropriation. There have been some pretty high profile examples that have that have popped up. And and we're really interested in, in your take on that. But I know, I mean, just based on the title of your book, Dress Your Best life there's also going to be a lot of people that want to just tap into the, to that expertise i mean people are sitting here and, and i know doc because i'm one of them um you know we've tried to put on i recently i'm going to tell you the truth i tried to put on a three-piece suit of mine my favorite suit the favorite one that i own uh i tried to put it on the other day and guess what the buttons don't quite meet where they need to uh the vest as a matter of fact is a little tight right now because i've spent a lot of time over the past 18 months wearing yoga pants and t-shirts and golf shorts and playing it super casual people are kind of gearing up again this is probably good news for for a lot of clothiers but people are starting to gear up again to get back into it from a fashion standpoint did you feel a little bit inspired yourself yeah yeah well don't don't worry i'm here to normalize everyone has gained some quarantine 15 yeah so don't worry that 15 pounds um don't worry um yeah so i find that people's relationship with their clothing has indeed changed due to the pandemic. They went from dressing for external factors such as the weather, my boss, my family, my lover. Now you're just dressing for yourself. So I literally talk about this in the book. I also talk about cultural appropriation, which is a hot topic considering the climate that we're in globally speaking. Um, So, you know, I'm talking about what what is cultural appropriation and how could we do better, right? Um, I think as a woman of color, as a black woman, I have no qualms with teaching others how to culturally appreciate. And so I would just say, you know, for starters, know where the garment is coming from and the significance or the historical significance of that garment. 
<laughs> we've had uh i mean there have been some, some high profile exam i mean uh, you know people as, as soon as i say coachella everybody's gonna go oh you're talking about indigenous headdresses that's what you're talking about there but there are many more examples let me put some pop culture examples in front of you i'm curious for your take on this uh everybody loves sarah jessica parker uh most people love sex in the city uh you see her i don't know if you would describe this as a turban or, or some sort of a head covering but this to you is, is this image or is this is this fashion here is that problematic in your mind in the context of cultural appropriation in the context of the movie um i do feel like it could be deemed as culturally depending on where she is let's just say that depending on where she is and i believe in that uh segment of the movie they were in dubai i believe or abu dhabi one of those the emirates and uh so i would say it could be culturally appropriating depending on the fact that they're in the Emirates um, and perhaps if she were drinking whiskey or a beer, you know, doing things that would be deemed inappropriate for a woman in the United Arab Emirates, that would be indeed cultural appropriation. Huh. Let me, this is I don't know if you're a woman of faith. If so, I don't know what the faith uh, may be. But but, uh, you know, we had a very fascinating conversation with members of our team here. And, and I want to acknowledge these are two different things that we're talking about. But number one, we'll see international correspondents, right? Women that are reporting on news events, uh, oftentimes in the Middle East that are wearing head coverings. To me, I've always perceived yes. that as a sign of respect uh, and also probably yes. as, as 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 far as they can get to an assurance of, of safety, quite frankly. Um, yes. At the same time, we've seen some horrific incidents. As a matter of fact, you know, racism fueled incidents uh, here in Canada, in particular in our home province of Alberta, where hijabi women have faced attacks. And there have been some upstart movements from non-Muslim people, in particular women, saying we want to wear a hijab or a head covering in solidarity with these women. And we had an interesting debate, honestly, as, as three white people, let's be honest. But we had an interesting debate and not that you can't be white and Muslim, but I think you understand my point um, <laughs> about whether or not that might qualify as cultural appropriation. I've spoken to some Muslim friends that have had actually differing opinions on this. What's your inclination? So the agency that you occupy, that a white woman wearing a hijab, she has agency. Um, she can navigate. She doesn't have to worry about necessarily someone thinking that she's going to blow up a plane. Um, so uh, Middle Eastern women and or women of color who wear a hijab, they have less agency than a white woman who wants to join in solidarity and wearing a turban or a hijab or even a habaya. Um, so it's it's all about now. Is it cultural? Is it cultural appropriation? It it, it depends because there are two sides, right? You can you can be polarized on two sides. But I find it. What do they do in that garment? Are they trying to reclaim? the the habaya and name it something else or they're doing you know egregious are they performing egregious acts and that and that garment that would be disrespectful so it depends but i can tell you something that no one's talking about is the agency in which a white woman in solidarity wearing a hijab has she may not you know have to contend with being profiled in the stereotypes that a, a woman of color in a hijab would have to contend with agency that's a great word to consider how about this one from arguably the world's biggest pop star? How, how about this image from Taylor Swift? Uh, this the shake it off video. Uh, I know that she took some heat for this. For, for our friends that are listening to the podcast here, uh, Doctor, would you describe what you're seeing here and give us your take on it? 
Indeed. Um, so let me describe. Um, it's Taylor Swift. Um, shout out to all of the Swifties out there. Um, Taylor Taylor Swift. She was wearing something uh, that was very uh, a la streetwear, uh, very hip hop culture. Um, and so here's why it's cultural appropriation. I could wear the big bamboo earrings that she has on and the gold chain and um, um, for all intents and purposes, those are, we would call those booty shorts, but they're jean low, uh, sh- they're jean shorts. Okay. Um, so I, if I myself were to wear that, I would be deemed as incompetent, uh, ghetto, um, uh, a lower class. I'm trying to pick all of the, uh, uh appropriate terms, right? right? PG yeah. terms. Um, so, so whereas she, again, we're talking about this agency, she can wear that and people are saying, Oh, that's hot. If I were to wear that, I may not have the same, you know, uh, perception. If you will, uh, Doc, I want to I want to point out we do know that you're a New York City based Columbia educated fashion psychologist who may be concerned about your own <laughs> reputation. But we have no rules around PG language here on this podcast. Oh, so you, okay. you, you, can, you can say whatever the hell you want, just to be clear. Um, a frank question, a fastball right down the middle. Does it make a difference? Is it problematic? Is it a factor that what appears to be and I can't tell totally, but it appears to me all four of her backup dancers are black women uh, or appear to be black women or racialized women. Does that make a difference? <laughs> It, it 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 does make a difference. Um, um, it, it's maybe it m- maybe gives her more license because she has black bodies in the background. It gives her license to you know don the uh, this hip hop attire. Um, but uh, is it wrong? Is it problematic? Hell yes, and hell yes again. <laughs> hell yes, and hell yes again. No, no no room for debate there, which is good. These are sometimes issues are if I could say black and white in that context. What about this one? This was a really interesting one. Kim Kardashian, right? Billionaire influencer Kim Kardashian says she was channeling Bo Derek. Uh, when she rocked these braids, uh, your thoughts, first of all, on Kim, sec- I'll use first name basis like I know them. Second of all, on Bo, I mean, are, are both examples, are both problematic? Okay, so I actually talk about this in my book, Dress Your Best Life. The last chapter is titled Your Woke Wardrobe. And I talk about how Kim Kardashian um, just hijacked that whole uh, uh, look they call it the Boderic braids when really uh, they're, they're not, that's not what it's called. Uh, me, myself as a black woman, we grew up with those hairstyles and we have other names for it. And again, uh, if I were to wear the Boderic braids, my, my competency will be questioned and, you know, and whatnot. So I, I, I do believe this is an act of cultural appropriation due to that word, that hot word that I keep throwing out there, agency that Kim Kardashian has. Many black women cannot show up uh, to work uh, uh, in these type of styles. You know, um, they've just passed certain laws on hair, um, on natural hair showing up to work um, in certain certain uh, states um, in, our, in our country. So in the, in the country, United States of America. So I'm saying that to say that uh, this is definitely cultural appropriation. Um, in my book, I talk about, you know, Kim Christopher Columbusing it, which is essentially landing in a place and then reclaiming it and renaming it and you know in 2021 we're not here for those we're not here for for none of that (laughs) this was uh this is a piece i want to reference this in the new york times this this goes back though this is six years ago from 2015 where where they ask the question does anyone own the cornrow uh 
Or is, is cornrow an offensive mm-hmm. term, by the way? No, no, no. Cornrows, um, from what I know of and, and within my culture, it's not an um, offensive term. Um, but uh, when you again, when you see the cornrows on uh, white women or non-black women, you know, I I would some at times I can just self-disclose. I'd love to wear um, certain things, but, you know, on TV, it may not bode well you know um i may be trolled um i may not get interviews back to back i may do an experiment after the show i may do an experiment you know and actually wear my hair and cornrows and see uh how what, what's the public opinion of me i may do this experiment after the show <laughs> can i tell you i'm not i'm not going to name the guy because he, did, he didn't sign up to you know he was speaking in confidence to me but let me I had an opportunity to chat with a guy who works in agriculture um, who, who's a matter of fact works in sales really big I'm, I'm we're talking like three quarter million dollar combines and half million dollar tractors and stuff like that and and he was telling me about the hiring process and he said that he knew a guy that had big earrings like the big spacer earrings right he had long wore his hair long he had tattoos on his hands and on his necks he said this guy was unbelievable at turning wrenches he said he was one of his best staff members when it came to servicing uh this farm equipment said he was a great employee said he was happy to employ him said but the guy had aspirations of working let's call it front of house in in customer service or sales working with the farmers and this guy the president of the company told me it was a no-go He said that farmers, quite frankly, would not want to do business with a guy with spacer earrings, tattoos on his neck and long hair. I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, and it's 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 really unfortunate. I mean, you know, it takes uh, 15 seconds to make an impression right on. and, And that's according to research. So before you even, you know, open your mouth, people are already sizing you up and even um, on an unconscious level, they form these opinions. I talk about this a lot with my students and we try to debunk these myths and these notions, you know, by by examining, you know, where did this stereotype come from? So in this case, you know, he can't be front of the house because, oh, he's not a good look. But is he competent? That's the thing. So I'm hoping with, you know, my fashion psychology field that I'm able to, you know, bring this to the forefront so we can have people with tattoos in the front of the house, with cornrows in the front of the house and going to to job interviews and whatnot. So, again, hopefully with my movement, you know, we can bring about change. Yeah, but it it takes people, you know, if I could use the phrase, I mean, it takes people that are willing to go out on the front lines. It takes people that are willing to put their neck out there, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and actually talk about it in an educated way as well. You know, so th- this is what I'm here for. This yeah. is what I'm here for. This is my job. <laughs> are there are there gray? I mean, there's no I think there are gray areas. I'm curious to know how you'll how you'll perceive it. But um, if, if there's a fine line between celebration and appropriation, like let me let me say uh, there's no way. I mean, if you, if you talk to indigenous leadership, if you t- talk to the average indigenous person, uh, there's no way you're going to you're going to get the green light on on wearing a headdress. For example, the the spiritual, the leadership connotations, the cultural connotations that that go with that are huge. However, uh, you may have things like leather tasseled vests or you may have people that have been gifted moccasins, perhaps even purchased uh, moccasins from indigenous artisans. Do you have a sense? I mean, does, do these sort of things that might be one example of things that might fall into a gray area? Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, so this notion of appreciation versus 
appropriation, right? There, mm-hmm. There's a balance. And, you know, I would just say knowing the historical significance of the garment is number one. Um, and at least, you know, secondly, you should at least, you know, try to get some type of permission or talk to someone of that culture to know it's, if you made up your mind that you're like, I'm going to wear this, you know, just to know the rules and that said garment or attire. Um, I think people should do their homework, you know, so they're not, you know, being disrespectful. Yeah. Interesting question from Donna. I love this one. She says, is it cultural appropriation if I wear a kilt? Ooh, ooh, that's a good one. Really good. You know what? And I, and, and I, you know what? I haven't, you know what? Cause Kanye West wore a kilt and um, they actually scrubbed, they scrubbed the internet with him in this kilt. Is that right? On um, his PR team. Yeah, yeah. They scrubbed the internet. I think we can probably still find it, but, they, but supposedly they scrubbed the internet. And, you know, is it cultural appropriation? I would actually have to say so. And I would actually have to say so. Now, certain cultures, it depends on where you are in the world. Now, if you're from that country or you or if you migrated to America, I've noticed working with clients and students that those who are still residing inside that culture in that country, they may not find it to be culturally appropriating, but those who have migrated to America's, but they still like, they're still, you know, um, wrapped up in their culture. They themselves may find it to be culturally appropriating. So it sort of depends where you are in the globe. It's relative, but you just want to, you know, err on the side of being cautious. Yeah. We've got a great message here from Yuliand in our uh, live chat on, on YouTube says, I've got the most beautifully embroidered Chinese silk jacket. Uh, says it was a gift from my Chinese mother-in-law, uh, but says I can't bring myself to wear it as a white woman, but I love that jacket so much. Uh, Fatima, who who watches in, one of our regular commenters, always great to have her perspective on here. Uh, a hijabi uh, woman uh, says, you know, here's for context. Um, and I'm going to mispronounce is, is it a, a, a kufi or, or wearing a scarf anyway? Kufi. Kufi. What, what is a kufi? Can you tell me? Um, it's like a beanie, like a, a, a okay. beanie that goes on your head, okay. like a flat beanie. A, uh, yeah. Okay, she flat says beanie. wearing a kufi or scarf in solidarity uh, because it signifies a movement is great, but wearing a, a hijab in solidarity is not okay because hijab is identity, um, yeah. which is interesting. And then I'm thinking, I don't know if this is a curveball or not. Um, but you know, I've, I've been, you know, privileged enough and blessed enough to, to partake in, in some pretty meaningful ceremonies with Jewish friends of mine. And it's not unusual mm-hmm. for a, a person that is not of the Jewish faith or background to don a male to don a yarmulke, right. Mm-hmm. Out of respect in that, in that house of worship, in that synagogue or what have you. So anyway, I, I don't know. I mean, these are, it all comes down to, I would imagine even when you talk about considerations that a white woman would want to make, you know, wearing a hijab in solidarity, for example, mm-hmm. which Fatima said certainly wouldn't be her preference. Um, but you talk about, you know, considerations that need to be made. And um, you, you talked about agency, right? And another word mm-hmm. might be privilege. And, and I almost wonder if maybe that comes back in, maybe the Scots that are tuned in aren't going to love this one, but maybe, maybe that plays into the kilt thing too. Like have have although I mean geez looking through history of the United Kingdom you probably could make the argument um, but would would you mm-hmm. describe the Scottish as oppressed peoples I'm probably opening a big can of worms right now um, but I don't know if it's apples I don't know if it's apples and apples yeah I I, I it de- okay it's a tough I'm, one I'm a little 
that yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. I, I'll answer it with this. I have two terms um, that I rarely talk about in the media, and I'm talking about it here on your show. Real talk. Um, fashion, fashion identification assimilation. It's a mouthful, but I, I I coined it this way. So when you say it, you'll know what it means. So fashion identification assimilation is when you dress for that social environment. Um, and then we have another term, fashion situational code switching, which is when you switch different garments depending on your the circle that you're in, your social your, your social circle that you're in. Um, and so think of it like toggling between different screens on your on your browser. So this code switching and this assimilating. You, people do this on a regular basis. Now, I, I believe one of the, the the listeners out there, they talked about, you know, being gifted something. Mm. I believe if you were gifted something by the person in that culture, you do. They're giving you the agency. They're giving you that agency, the privilege to wear it. Um, my, you may want to ask, and I thank you for the gifts, but in what situation would I be where would I be able to wear this in? Yeah, you know. So do your homework, do your due diligence. But this assimilation, uh, fashion identification assimilation, and then fashion situational code switching. We all do this on some level, regardless of where we are on the privilege spectrum. It could be that you have. Uh, race privilege or the fact that you have attractiveness privilege or the fact that you have body privilege, right? So wherever you are on the privilege spectrum, you actually assimilate and you actually code switch. I want to do a whole show on attractiveness privilege. I mean, we love, we, 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 we afflict ourselves with uncomfortable conversations. That would be one, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to invite me back. Um, I'm working on the second book, but we'll talk about pretty privilege. Next I would, time. I would love to have you back on the show. I think that would be great. This is from Craig, by the way, who says there's a difference. He says coming from a Scotsman. So Craig says there's a difference between wearing a tartan and wearing plaid. So that, that's an interesting point. Doc, this is you have just delivered on all fronts. What a fascinating conversation. <laughs> you, you have taken us into the black and the white and the, and the shades of gray. And we're so grateful for it. Dr. Don Karen's book, relatively new, published just last year, um, uh, Dress Your Best Life. You can find it anywhere you find great books. And, and look up her TED Talk as well. Uh, a whole bunch to get into and a lot to think about. Dr. Don Karen joining us from New York City. Thanks so much for this. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. I encourage you to check out that book, Real Talkers, Dress Your Best Life. Any epiphanies there for you, Halls? I just, I think making sure to do uh, just a quick Google, like just do a quick Google. That's, yeah. a, that's all I need to do. And the pretty privilege, pretty privilege, pretty privilege. I mean, you know what I love about I this it. one is that, that um, I'm not going to say nobody, but let me be hyperbolic for a second. Nobody wants to acknowledge their privilege. No, I, mean, I think it's actually a rock star move. I think it's great to acknowledge privilege. I'll acknowledge privilege every single day. I've got a whole bunch of it um, and it's freeing and honest and, and wonderful as a matter of fact, I think to acknowledge it. Um, but for a lot of people like you have white privilege. How dare you white privilege and then if you're like you have attractiveness privilege they're like well thank you very much <laughs> why well, if you insist and where does it kick in is that like at the like on the seven seven on the scale where does attractiveness this is such an un, this is not a, an appropriate bit of conversation but it's no, real but it's real talk it's on real a scale talk. of on a scale of one to ten everybody knows the scale you know belinda started seeing a guy off bumble the other day 
Well, yeah, he's like a soft eight. Not bad, you know. Where does a attract soft eight. <laughs> soft eight's better? You, you you'd rather be a soft eight than a seven. But where where does attractiveness privilege kick in? I wonder. Well, the, I think there also there's the conversation around you know color and um not, and i don't just mean white versus uh people of color i mean um like skin tone so is it called colorism i believe um i, I should probably do the google everything's got an ism yeah is no it- but but just saying that you know women uh of color with lighter shades of skin they tend to like beyonce tends to um like popularity wise they and also getting cast in films and getting cast in ad campaigns yeah the lighter the skin mm. um it's called colorism i believe i'm interesting yeah. sam yeah. have you ever been did, did any of that resonate with you in the sense have you ever been gifted something or some sort of cultural garb or some sort of a meaningful uh addition to a wardrobe a gift or is, has there been anything maybe in your wardrobe that you've retired over the years in the context of this Oh man! Uh, can we get yeah. me off the screen? Oh, there here? we go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm navigating like six things at once here, guys. Um, I'm trying to think if I've ever been gifted anything. I mean, I've got no. It, it's I'm phew, come back to me. On Have that you stopped? One. Yeah. Well, if you think I'm, of something, because I'd be curious to know. Like, I'm I've thinking got a, back actually to a wedding where I went to, where the groom was Scottish and he actually wanted all of his groomsmen in matching kilts. And but I think you that's know, wonderful. By, exactly. And it's just like, like the he, you know women that like at yeah. Indian weddings, you'll see that you know the. Uh, I don't know the proper terminology. I'm assu- let me say bridesmaids. I'm assuming that would be the the proper terminology. But like, you know, I've had white girlfriends of mine that have that have stood in weddings. I mean, if you're ever going to get invited to a wedding, an Indian wedding is the one you want to get invited. Oh, they're, they're like awesome. five days long. I just think like the party, the, the parents. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What are weddings are like a quarter million dollars. But anyway, uh, but but like so that so they'll wear like, you know, culturally significant clothing uh, and it's beautiful. Uh, that is with the blessing, obviously, of the couple. Precisely. Right? I mean, I uh, when I was growing up, my one of my dear friends when I was a little kid, Mira, uh, she, they, 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 I loved going over there, and yeah, her mom enjoyed. Like, I got to try on all these different outfits, and they they put me in them, and um, I just felt so lucky that I got to yeah experience that and get the actual. Like it wasn't just a costume; it was really like getting to learn about what what it means yeah. and how you wear it. And um, so I felt, yeah, I feel like when it's, and I think that was to the point of the doctor is that, you know, if it comes from somebody and you come, it, it's within that context. Sure, it's different, right? I think of I, I can think yeah. of this famous picture of um alberta's former premier ralph klein wearing uh you know as they would describe it in the day an indian headdress right an indigenous i mean it signifies there's there are major connotations to that um of course uh, premier klein uh, you know warts and all uh there's a lot you can say about ralph klein's legacy but you know he did have i mean his wife was of metis heritage the guy had uh strong connections in many cases with indigenous communities i know that would have meant a whole lot uh to him but like ralph klein wouldn't show up to the Edmonton Folk Music Festival wearing the the headdress and like, you know, little John Lennon sunglasses as a fashion statement. There's a huge difference there, obviously. Right. Um, on our live chat here, this is uh, somebody I've, I've not seen this, but someone says there's a there's a great uh, this is Francis. Thanks for watching. Francis says there was a great SNL bit about when white people first realized Beyonce is black. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. In my mind, the best the best skit along those lines 
Have you guys ever seen Dave Chappelle on the Chappelle show as the blind Klansman? He's blind. He doesn't know he's black. He's in the Ku Klux Klan. It's like Chappelle to me is just of, of comedians that have pushed the envelope in the last 25 or 30 years. Dave Chappelle is an absolute genius. Um, I know some of his comments, uh, his 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 rise back, his resurgence. I know that a lot of his, you know, these specials he released on Netflix. What was it? Probably a year and a half ago now. Uh, ruffled a lot of feathers. Um, but that's the in my mind that that is the mark. I mean, within reason, I guess. And we could debate on that. We could do a whole show on that comedy. When does comedy cross the line? But he, I think, is doing his job. You look at comedians, uh, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, mm. people that have made people extremely uncomfortable. Um you know, and then there's those that cross the line. Remember Gilbert Gottfried making jokes about, you know, during the Japanese tsunami, making jokes about Japan as the waters were flowing. Uh, you know, I mean, and he lost. I mean, he lost the big Aflac contract. That one was gone right away. Um, you know, consequences for that. But comedians have to push that envelope, right? Well, I think that's you know that that's part of their job. But I loved Seth Rogen coming out and saying, you know, at a certain time, you do need to. Re- some jokes need to be retired. And yeah, some jokes are not timeless and you need to know when to say when. Is anything timeless? I mean, you look at, Mm. uh, oh my gosh, we are just opening. Like how long is today's show going to be if we open this can? (laughs) Because what is what is timeless when you talk about books? I mean, some people are, you know, Mark Twain's books should be canceled. Uh, Let me not. I don't know about the word. Don't use the word canceled, man. I I got canceled, man. I was the radio. I was the radio host that refused to be canceled. Uh, So, yeah, exactly. You You didn't get it. I guess I can use the word, though, can I? But but, uh, you know, people saying we shouldn't read Mark Twain. We shouldn't teach Mark Twain in schools anymore. What about the I mean, there are some. You know, some some songs, Dire Straits is a good example with the other F word, right? In one of their songs. I mean, you've had a lot of people saying that that not everything culturally is going to stand the test of time. And should we continue to teach it for historical context or not? I mean, we're, we're watching. I mean, I, I used to think Adam Sandler was pretty funny and uh, or let me say his old stuff. I used to find it pretty funny, but I watched Billy Madison uh, or at least watched a bit of it <laughs> and was like Ugh. a while ago. And I was like. Wow. Like, it's not really aged well. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, even, even just kind of the homophobia throughout is like, it's, it's, you're sort of going, I, I didn't really remember it being like this 20 years ago. So, yeah, I don't know. When it, when it comes to sort of, uh, I, th- I think it's important to, to, because these literary works and, and music and, you know, what we see on the stage and screen, um, it's reflective of society at that time. So it's like, you know, watching these have, have sort of a time capsule effect. Uh, but at the same time, some of the language that's used and some of the attitudes that are portrayed. I mean, he shared a couple of months ago reading. I was, I was so blessed to, um, to to get my hands on some storybooks uh, that I used to read or that used to be read to me when I was like four and five and six. And these storybooks were, were so meaningful to me. And if when I see the the illustration in them. Um, you know, it, it sort of takes me back to that era of childhood and, and all that. But like some of these books are horrific mm-hmm. right there's a book i don't know if you read it at home but like a like little black sambo have you ever read this book like reading it now it's like whoa right and and even 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 the passive in, in some of these storybooks even the passive stuff of like you know little johnny who's out with his his family and then you know they're gathering around the family dinner table and and the help is bringing out the dinner and you know it, it's just like these are in kids storybooks and not not ironically or not talking about how the way things used to be, just that was the storybook. The thing that I find 
you know, people can say, oh, everyone's being very sensitive now. Oh, people are sensitive and you can't say anything. And to me, I'm like, the way that I kind of work through it is the idea that for the longest time, one perspective, the dominant perspective, so the white perspective, white male gaze was the standard. And so we didn't necessarily take into consideration how homophobic uh, or insensitive language would be received by those other populations. Um, so to me, it's just about being thoughtful yeah. and being kind and thinking about it. Sure. It's not my experience, but what, how would this land for somebody that is not like me? And is but I also don't think that that's um, I don't know if you're talking about stand up comedy as an example, but but I don't know that the mandate of of a great stand up comedian and we can discuss what the metric is of great. I don't think a great stand up comedian needs to be driven by what is thoughtful and kind. I think you can be thoughtful as a comedian. I think you need to be aware. But like doing it's just like being like scatological scatological talking about like poo and shit and piss and like going for the lowest scatological yeah okay isn't that a i'm afraid to google it (laughs) um but basically going for the easy the really like low bar of comedy relating to or characterized by an interest in excrement and excretion there you go scatological Scatological. humor sarah hoyles (laughs) we learn something every day here friends it is no secret that running a small business isn't easy and life as a business owner is hectic to say the least. Uh, Let Alberta Blue Cross help you find a little peace of mind with a group benefit plan. They offer flexible health, dental, life and disability coverage for you and your employees. Even better, they let your employees They make it possible for them to enroll themselves, manage their own coverage at any time and on any device. That makes life easier for them and it makes life easier for you. Alberta Blue Cross. Explore your options at ab.bluecross.ca. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, they literally get in touch with us to say things like, please thank Real Talkers for their amazing loyalty. Thank Real Talkers for letting us know when it's them. They're repping the brand when they're coming through the drive through or popping in store. The Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park are proudly family-owned in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road, where if you drop my name, Jespo, or Real Talk, they'll give you two cheeseburgers for just $5. These are the flame-broiled ones. No joke there. Two double cheeseburgers for 7 bucks at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Every week, we partner with our friends at Y Station. They are, they are our official research and strategy partners, and, uh, you know, we put in front of you a question of the week and a while ago we asked you about how you're managing this heat wave and uh pretty interesting results uh they provide these top line reports if you support us on patreon a huge thank you uh to the real talkers that make a monthly commitment to to help us grow this show and that you've joined our journey uh details on that on our website uh you've already received the exclusive top line report i think it's 19 pages this time amazing data analysis insight into what makes real talkers tick but following this heat wave or some might say we're not exactly through this yet jesperson here's some of the interesting data from the team at y station 
This is from the Top Line report. When it came to how those of you are managing this heat wave, 71% of real talkers that responded to the survey said you were ready. 71% were ready for it. Now, what does that mean? We'll get into that. Here's another high-level analysis. This is, these are some of the, they analyze all the data. They took a look at all the numbers. The most popular hack for keeping cool when it came to real talkers, 54% of you have been covering up the windows in your home. That was the top response. I thought that that was an interesting one. 54% covering up the windows in your home. Uh, other interesting numbers there. 46% of you chose other. Who knows what that is? 30% of you said we moved down to the basement. 35% of you said you loaded up on cool treats. I think our friends at Dairy Queen might appreciate that. 16% of you got new fans or portable AC units. 16% of you as well were lucky enough to actually get the AC installed. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, you, you loaded up on cool treats. Uh, 1% of you booked a hotel. So 1% of those who responded actually booked a hotel. That includes some friends of mine who were hunting for AC wherever they could find yeah, it. Yeah, staycation in their hometown, or maybe maybe not, but I think people were still going to work. Yeah. Uh, still working, but needing to cool the heck off. Cool the heck off. And these are people that were trying to buy AC units. Um, the people that were trying to buy oscillating fans couldn't find them anywhere. So what's the other? One in three of you, 30% or so, told us that other. Well, okay, you broke out the kiddie pool, or if you're Sarah Hall's, the doggy pool. Uh, you said, I love this one, uh, said, uh, frozen water pucks for the dogs. How great is that? Some of you used cold packs like the icy cold packs to help cool your bodies down. Uh, you drove to the coast. One of you told us, how about this? A top sheet at night that you misted with water with a fan going. So you missed the sheet with water. You have the fan blow on you and they say that the air from the fan cooled the sheet and kept me cool. That was pretty great. What about extraordinary measures to beat the heat? Real talkers. We asked you about that. One of you said the heat wave coincided with, a, 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 quite frankly, a horrible reaction to my second shot. My Moderna shot uh, said I would have been twice as miserable had I not gone to a hotel. How about that? Another says I moved my home office to a friend's house with a basement much cooler than my own. Another says I returned to work in the office for the first time since COVID restrictions began. Another says, I don't know what qualifies as extraordinary, but we did tape tinfoil and cardboard to all the windows that didn't have coverings already. Says, I've never done that before. We have a small AC unit for our bedroom. We'd get it going three hours before we wanted to sleep. The top floor of our house was 30 degrees day in, day out. And says this listener, I am pregnant. So the heat really got to me in the afternoons and the productivity at my work took a major nosedive. Don't ever complain about how you're feeling if you are in the presence of a woman who is pregnant. It is a bad idea. Well, it's also just dumb. And <laughs> well, yeah, it's a bad idea. It, well, if, if, you're asking for it. Yeah. Well, no, it's not just you're asking for it. Like this, she's carrying a parasite. Well, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you know what do you think? Anyways, I'm gonna leave that one right there. She's carrying another creature. Uh -huh. And like oh Ryan cannot believe that I said that. When you look at the relationship People think it's cold to call it a fetus. You've just called it a parasite. No, but if you, you look could at, call it an alien too. You I mean, could call it, it No, but if you look like at the relationship between like what is a parasite? Fair point. It is it feeds off of mm -hmm. the host. So scientifically, I'm speaking on pure scientific terms here. 
even the people at Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood are like, that is harsh. Oils. She went. That is harsh. I really shouldn't have said that. How did you beat the heat, Sam? I think it's hilarious. What, what was your, I'm, did, I'm you, did you have a strategy? This parasite thing. Yes, I actually, <laughs> uh, I have one portable air conditioner and, and a plywood insert that fits in every window in the house so Smart I can just move man. it around with me. Hang That's on, is what the, I was doing. Does the insert, is, is it, is it, uh, there's a, a different one to fit every window or is it a, is it a universal yeah, if fit? You, if you go around my house, you'll see a plywood piece with a circle cut out of it. For like, every Installed AC in unit. every window see, and you can just move the so AC heavy, unit so much around more, with you. So much more well organized, see, this guy. I can't, I, you know, that sounds like a lot of work, Sam. <laughs> I thought that Sam would be the guy to do the, because I've seen it. You know, on the DIY stuff where you have like a Tupperware container, you put ice in it, you put a lid on it, you stick a fan down into it, okay, and then it, like it. it's your homemade air conditioner. I totally thought I paid you for that kind of person. You know, I, I would be that kind of person. Um, when I moved into my house, I kid you not, I opened up one of the closets and there were two air conditioners in it. And I was like, these can't be mine, right? And the realtor was like, no, no, they come with the house. And so I, I lucked out on that one. Otherwise, yes, I would have a Tupperware with just piles and piles of ice in it and probably would be making DIY air conditioning. Uh, Ytrium says, uh, and for those that are expecting commentary on air conditioning, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, Ytrium says, but it is a parasite. Some random guy says it buries itself into the wall of the uterus and drains nutrients. Like, what else are you going to call it? You know, Scarlett says, I have two kids. They can be parasites. It's A-OK. Chelsea says 100% a parasite. James says totally comfortable with parasite. Ashley says it is a parasite. Sharon says, no, not parasites. Klingons. So alien from Star Trek. A Klingon. Yeah. Deborah's taking it into dung beetle territory. We got to. Who's here to defend the fetus in this conversation? Not the first time that's ever been said on talk radio. Do I dare go directly into an ad read right now? I don't think so. Let's let me let me show you where your hearts are at, though. Real talkers. Seriously, though, through the heat wave when it struck. And this is great because we get these. We know where these uh, comments are coming from. Right. We can see um, we get great feedback from Y Station, which helps us understand our audience and where they're from. And also, you know, love a school you're at and the gender dynamic and your level of income and all kinds of interesting and fascinating things. Um, we can tell you at a high level, real talkers, you are very, very smart. And you also care about other people because you were chiming in from British Columbia and Ontario and Alberta and Saskatchewan and the Maritimes and our dear friends in the United States and from around the world. We've told you more than 60 countries. Our website sees hits from every month. So this is not specific to any jurisdiction. But when you experienced this heat, what were you most concerned about? 34% of you were concerned most uh, for vulnerable people who may not have access to water or protection from the heat. Uh, a quarter of you, 25%, said you were most concerned with your own family's health and well-being. 21% about your pet's health and well-being. 12% about your plants and your garden, which I can totally understand. 1% of you said you were most concerned about the impact on businesses already struggling from pandemic restrictions. That was one that wouldn't have been on my radar and I thought that that was really interesting. We asked if you believe there was more to come. In other words, do you believe we'll see more heat waves like this or will they be more frequent uh, in years to come? 89% of respondents, 9 out of 10, said that, yes, climate change will make these types of events more frequent. 8% 
said that we've seen these types of heat waves before in Western Canada. One percent of you characterized it as a fluke. Now, 89 percent of you may believe that, yes, there's more to come. Yes, climate change is a reality. But what are we going to do about it? And this at a high level, this stat from Y Station really jumped out at me. Fifty four percent of you, more than half, believe that human ingenuity will save us from the impacts of climate change. Sarah Hoyles is going to give herself a concussion based on the back and forth (laughs) hell no type body language you are demonstrating at this moment. The audio impact of this must be very fascinating. Yeah, I'm getting a headache. For people wearing AirPods. You don't don't count yourself in the 54% that believe that humans will save ourselves from ourselves. Um, I just, I think this whole idea that, yo, we'll just, we'll, we should like spray certain, particles into the air which will then create enough of a barrier so we don't have to worry about blah blah but like no what we need to do is cut back and like to me it's just we don't need to create more things but you're but you're okay but you're but that 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 could fall under human ingenuity right Uh, like that that could be part of the strategy i guess what it is is like do do 54 percent uh or does the majority believe that it's not too late. What do you think? Do you think it's too late? Do you think that humans will we save ourselves from ourselves, Sam? I don't think we'll save ourselves from ourselves, but I think we'll learn to adapt. Uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of damage that's kind of already been done. There's a lot of irreparable stuff like sea levels are going to rise. Ice caps are going to melt. The, the you know, heat waves are going to become more common and cold snaps can become more common and hurricanes are going to become more common. And humans will probably deal with this in in a number of ways one being moving like there will be a lot of migration around the earth yeah and the other will be technology we will find ways to keep ourselves cool to keep ourselves comfortable and and a lot of that technology goes into the ways that we cut carbon emissions as well too so i think that you know when we talk about human ingenuity will save us from climate change that can be a, a, a myriad of different things 100 percent. you know like I mean? whether you're talking yeah. about you know biodomes or better sunscreen or more awareness around drinking water i mean people are going to roll their eyes but i'm just saying that human ingenuity could could be a hundred or a thousand or a million different things uh tiana says when the uh heat wave first happened i had to check myself because i was not actively pointing to the climate change origins and casual discussion i'm used to so much pushback from deniers i I enjoyed our conversation the other day on the show about whether or not that was legitimate with with the good doctor our our wildfire expert uh that was just a few days ago that was that was a great conversation about the the climate change implications of wildfires or maybe the wildfire implication of climate change i had no idea i had no idea and i should have known this Uh, But I know I wasn't alone that uh, increased lightning strikes are a direct result or a directly attributable to climate change. I had no idea. That was fascinating stuff. Uh, I know you're going to grab what date that interview was. That was July 7th, July 7th. Awesome. That was a great show. That was that was if I'm going to say like of our last 10 or 15 shows, that's one of the interviews that really resonated with me. I thought that was amazing. Um, We've asked if you believe we can address climate change. Fifty four percent. Yes, we'll save ourselves. But. Let's let's get to this. And and when you expanded your answers, which we love, take a couple of minutes and and add to it or provide context. Listener said, uh, I want to say, yes, science will beat this. But scientists have been muzzled by the fossil fuel industry and politics for eons. And I think that even if there were zero emissions today, the planet will still keep warming. I'm hoping for my granddaughter's lifetime. Another says, I don't think so. No, but we need to do everything we can to minimize the extremes. It requires much more than an e-vehicle here or a solar panel there. I was talking to a guy from Vancouver yesterday on a Zoom call 
Uh, and he told me that electric vehicles are encouraging. He said, he said, but here's different. He says, we have hydropower here. He says, you're doing coal fired power there. He said, I'm, he said, I'm not hundred percent convinced. He said, I think that EVs that are powering up, we need to have conversations about the source of that power. And I know that a lot of people that's going to resonate with people for sure. Your top three treats for beating the heat. This will tell you a whole lot about real talkers. I'm not going to say I'm disappointed in you friends, because it actually shows you were quite responsible the majority of you recognizing that ice water was your top treat for beating the heat. 41% of you also looked to cold beers. No doubt, Jespo Pisco Sours Absolutely. from Sea Change Brewery, the official beer of summer in Canada. And one third of you put DQ Blizzards in your top three, your top three treats for beating the heat. I would love to do a drill down on that and find out uh, Real Talker's favorite blizzard flavor. We could do that. We could do that in a subsequent question of the week. I'd really like to know. We could even do that on a, uh, we could do a Twitter poll, we an unofficial unscientific Twitter poll on that. I, I want to know who considers ice water a treat. Ice water is just a necessity. No, but oh, oh, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Although ice water is a treat. Like if you've, if you've ever had, like I can think of some of the hikes that we've been on. Oh, well then ice water is a huge you're, treat. You're above the tree line. And, you know, you're, you're so you're exposed to the elements and it's one of those beautiful days, but it's a little too hot for hiking. And, 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 and the camelback is empty and you keep checking. You keep checking the hose over your shoulder. <laughs> yep. Still empty. And uh, and then and then I'll tell you when you get to like a, a glacier fed stream or something like that, it's like it's the most special thing in the world. It's the most special treat you could find. Or if you just slice a little bit of cucumber and put it into your water, it makes it very fancy. And yeah. delicious. Do you hike with cucumbers? No, that's just oh, just a, that's just a life hack in my in my house. That's just a life hack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, this is an opportunity for me to start talking about cucumber and Hendrix gin. But but I, I, we, we will know. You know, I mean, I just I, I think that muddled cucumbers with with a Hendrix gin and soda is is one of life's great pleasures. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at the clock right now and thinking maybe there's not one that's not too far away. Last but most importantly, what is your preferred hot weather treat? So these are the other mentions. These are ones that did not fall into the top three. Again, water, ice water number one. Real talkers just living responsibly, living your best lives. What else though? Frozen margaritas. Viewers said a homemade icebox cake and cold watermelon. Sounds amazing. A shandy sangria gelato uh-huh gin slings and weed said one of you another said my homemade rhubarb orange and lemonade slushies yes please another says coconut rum and fizzy water if i can get a little bit more specific 1850 coconut tequila and pellegrino is another one of like thank me later and bubble tea uh chris henderson the chief strategist at y station leaves a note here in our top sheet that says there's lots of debate over slurpy versus slushy and snowball versus screamer and he says fight it out in the chat y'all so we'll leave that up to the live chat that is actually a very good question if you go with slushy or slurpy like just terminology wise, I wish that Kelly. I mean, it just puts me in, an, in a really tough spot here because she says hiking with cucumbers aren't that much weirder than hiking with tartar sauce. And and I cannot disagree. Uh, however, Kelly, I would say that the way that I hike and the way that I bang around uh, the way that my pack slams down and the way that I drop it at the end of a long day um 
I'm not sure how well a cucumber would fare in there, although I'm starting to think I have this this like a really sexy case that my uh, fishing rod, my fishing pole breaks down in this hard case and I could maybe get the cucumber. I could maybe. Yeah, I could maybe you probably put like four or five cucumbers in there. You know, I just I had no idea when I divulged many months ago that I hike with tartar sauce. What a divisive. I mean, we've got sort of two things going on with this audience and we love you. Don't take it personally, but you're a little nuts about things like, I mean, people talk hiking with tartar sauce and raisins. There's two things we had. A, we had a serious. I didn't. I actually there's a, a listener that that would have heard their email to the show read the other day. We read it, but I cut off the P.S. I did not read the postscript because it was a deadly serious email about deadly serious things. And at the end, it was like, P.S. Raisins are brutal. I know I'm in the minority. I know you're not going to read this. And I was like, you were just talking to me about like COVID and healthcare, And they just had to chime in with raisins at the end. So we're going to have at the first ever Real Talk tailgate party, whenever we can have it, um, there's going to be all kinds of little things going on. Uh, you know, perhaps we'll have to have like, I mean, I don't want to start dividing the audience here. I don't think that that's constructive, but I, I, don't know, I don't know how we're going to manage this. I don't know how we're going to manage it. Sarah's been keeping an eye on our hashtag Real Talk RJ. That's powered by the team at Park Power, and they've got some really cool stuff going on. I've been telling you about their website, parkpower.ca. want you to check it out because it gives you an opportunity to compare rates on electricity, natural gas, and internet. It's simple to do, and obviously it's simple to switch as well. So natural gas rates, some of the best natural rates in Alberta when it comes to natural gas. No hidden fees, no long-term contracts. They spell it out for you. Are we talking about your residence, your business? your farm if you use the promo code 2021-realtalk and taking your business over to park power they're going to knock 70 dollars off your first bill thanks to our friends at park power at parkpower.ca also want to remind you that online on-demand learning is the way that adult education that post-secondary learning that professional or career advancement is going this is the wave of the future and power ed is offering it to you right now if you check out powered.ca by athabasca university you can learn more about the courses they have they call them short and stackable power courses some of them two or three hours some of them six or eight hours and you've got that certification you've got that life skill that you've just tacked on to everything else that you're bringing you've got certificate options and power ed services they're working with forward-thinking companies with consulting expertise that you'll only find at powered ca also a big shout out to the team at grand dog essentials uh, i know that many of you when it comes to your family members i mean we even read that we saw that in our question of the week they are always top of mind the furry ones the four-legged ones with apologies to the feathered ones we don't overlook them but it's quality raw food that you find at grand dog essentials they've got a team of nutritionists that can advise you on what may work in your pet's specific situation if you use the promo code real talk 10 percent off your first time order delivered to your door at granddog.ca it's been a fabulous show here on this Tuesday. Wanted to let you know that tomorrow we've already got irons in the fire to bring you a good one. We're going to talk about trends in the workplace. How will it or could it look different as you potentially head back? Plus, how to make your dog famous, a real expert, and of course, my Jasper memories. We'll talk to you tomorrow. The gun on-